Hello and welcome to Immunity, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Bianca Redenbaugh. And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. We're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at immunotpodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. Don't forget that's T-E-A. Now, time to get started with our guest for this episode. Professor Mark Little graduated from Trinity College Dublin in 1993. He went on to complete his PhD in nephrology in Imperial College London in 2005. Mark works as a clinician scientist and is a consultant nephrologist in Beaumont Hospital and Tala University Hospital in Dublin in Ireland. Mark runs a translational medicine research programme focused on the investigation of the pathogenesis of glomerulonephritis, as well as the discovery of biomarkers of this disease. His principal research interest is in ANCA-associated vasculitis. Mark, you are very welcome to the show. Let's get started with some of the basics. What is ANCA-associated vasculitis and how would you go about testing for it? ANCA-associated vasculitis is a rare autoimmune disease. And so autoimmune in the sense that the immune system perceives something as foreign within the person's own body and attacks it. And that the thing that is felt to be foreign in ANCA-associated vasculitis is a couple of proteins within the, the white blood cells, in, in the neutrophils. And these are proteinase 3 and myeloperoxidase. Um, so antibodies are generated against these proteins and cause activation of the cells within which they reside, which is neutrophils. I don't know, Lara, if you've ever had a cold or you're producing sputum the green bit of the sputum is the myeloperoxidase. So it accounts for about 10% of the weight of your neutrophils. What happens is that these neutrophils um, attack the very small blood vessels. So ANCA-associated vasculitis is a small vessel vasculitis, unlike some of the large vessel vasculitis, such as giant cell arteritis or tachyacid. Um, it only affects the, the blood vessels, uh, for example, in the kidney, in the glomerulus, or in the lung, and it causes their destruction, basically. So the organ that is supplied by these little small blood vessels is basically deprived of its blood supply and uh, undergoes ischemic injury. And so this presents to me particularly as a, as a glomerulonephritis. So as a kidney doctor, this is how I got into this type of field. But it also presents to a wide range of other specialties as well, because of course our small blood vessels go everywhere in our body. And so rheumatologists are the other major group of people who see patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis because they get uh, quite severe joint pains, rashes, red eye, bleeding from the lungs, sinusitis, um, a wide range of disorders. So it presents um, to a range of specialties, and so it is often misdiagnosed. I mean, so it's a rare condition. Um, when I say rare, it's not ultra-rare. There's probably about 100 cases a year in Ireland, uh, we have a population of about 5 million. So it does pitch up. You know, it pitches up at the, it tends to pitch up at the emergency departments. So people with this condition tend to become quite sick. So they, there's, there's not a large population, for example, walking around with undiagnosed ANCA-associated vasculitis. 
they tend to present to the, the hospital uh, or at least reasonably unwell to their primary care doctors. You alluded to the varied presentations. So ANCA-associated vasculitides are heterogeneous diseases. Can you discuss some of the key presentations that clinicians should be aware of and maybe delve into what underpins the large variability in the clinical phenotypes that are observed in these conditions? Well, yes, it does present. It's really strange that somebody with the same anti-MPO antibody, for example, might present to one place with a primary glomerulonephritis and they end up with kidney failure and they tend to have blood and protein in their urine, maybe hypertension rapidly rise in creatinine level. And these are features of what we call in, in kidney land uh, rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis. Uh, and in an adult, an RPGM is most commonly due to ANCA-associated vasculitis. So that, that's the common presentation. But also, you know, the same person or a person with the same kind of anti-MPO antibody might present with a foot drop, for example. So they may have a a neuropathy uh, due to vasculitis, or they may present actually with lung hemorrhage. So they may cough up blood or and uh, have difficulty breathing and bleeding into their alveoli in the lungs. And so why do they have such varied presentations? Well, it's one of the key questions in ANCA-associated vasculitis now. Is there something different about the antibody that we're not aware of? We haven't really uncovered major differences. There are, in some people, differences in the epitopes that are recognized by these antibodies on the MPO molecule, um, but it doesn't seem to follow any particular organ specificity pattern. Are there other antibodies that we are not aware of? I mean, that's an interesting question that we're trying to ad- address with um, colleagues in KTH in Sweden um, who are using a large-scale proteomic platform to screen for novel autoantibodies that seem perhaps to have an organ specificity. And the kind of other main reason probably is that there are endothelial bed differences in these specific organs. So why does, even in the kidney itself, when you do a section of the kidney, you can see lots of different parts of it. Only the glomeruli really are taken out by this and the rest is spared. And you might see one glomerulus, which is very severely affected. And when you see that, you might see what we call a crescent. So this is called a crescentic glomerulonephritis. It looks like a crescent moon uh, around the the glomerulus. And the one beside it might be completely unaffected. So what is the difference between those two? Why why was one of them taken out? I mean, they both have the same blood vessels going into them. They both have the same blood going into them. And so there must be some subtle differences in the endothelium and the vascular bed. And one of the suggestions is that the blood vessels in the glomerulus are quite narrow. So maybe the blood is slowed down and the cells that are activated by the ANC antibodies have more time to interact with the endothelium in those particular glomerular beds. So, yeah, we're not really sure why some organs are picked out, but there are some uh, hypotheses there. You touched on it a little bit there, Mark, but um, we've discussed, obviously, some of the role of, of the antibodies or the, the autoimmune antibodies. What is the role for the cellular immune system in this disease? And also, is there a role for cytokines as well? Well, as an uh, autoimmune disease, uh, the essence of this is loss of tolerance to these proteins within the person's body. And the loss of tolerance is really driven by the cellular adaptive immune response. So there are T cells and B cells that recognize specific epitopes as foreign. Uh, And of course, T cells uh, are the cells that drive the immune response. 
provide help to B cells, which are the antibody-producing cells. So undoubtedly, although we don't necessarily see a, a huge amount of T cells in the lesions necessarily, they are undoubtedly part of the initial driving force uh, behind generating this autoimmune response. As I said, they provide help to the, the, the B cells that become plasma cells that produce these pathogenic autoantibodies. And the way I see it is that right down at the effector end of the immune response, which is right down in the glomerulus there in that vascular bed, it's really the neutrophils and monocytes. So the innate immune cells, the myeloid cells, that are the initial drivers of the vascular inflammation. Now, we mentioned that the MPO and the PR3 are their proteins within the neutrophil and also the monocyte, and, but primarily the neutrophil. Now, these live within granules within the neutrophil. So they're not normally accessible to antibodies floating around in the blood. But it, uh, the suggestion is that there is something, and this is quite common in autoimmune disease, there's some perhaps a viral infection or some other trigger for the immune system to allow these um, autoantigens to appear on the surface of the neutrophil and thereby be accessible to the antibodies. And we know from a lot of in vitro and in vivo work that when these, well, these ANC antibodies bind to the neutrophil and the monocyte, they cause a lot of cellular activation, which I could go into in more detail. But basically, the cells go, go mad and they cause you know, acute endothelial injury. Um, and then there's a wave, uh, ongoing waves of, of these myeloid cells, failure of resolution of this inflammation, which is very important. And the um, kind of influx of pathogenic macrophages and other kind of innate cells to the, the site of injury to perpetuate the inflammation. Um, so, yeah, cells are important. Uh, very important. <laughs> so you mentioned how rare this is, 100 people a year out of 5 million in Ireland. Can you talk to us about what predisposes patients in terms of genetic and environmental factors? Really kind of interesting thing about ANC-associated vasculitis is it's, it has a couple of unusual features in autoimmune diseases. Firstly, the sex difference is about 50-50. Now, usually autoimmune diseases are predominant in females. So, but it's about 50-50 uh, male-female. And secondly, that it has a, quite a, an old age of onset. So the median age, age of onset of ANCA vasculitis is about 62. Most uh, autoimmune diseases occur younger. So it is fascinating that people are, do have a genetic predisposition, which I can go into, um, but they'll be walking around with this cheekies genes um, for their 62 years and they encounter something in their environment. So generally, we think of autoimmunity as a triad, really, of genetics, epigenetics, and uh, environmental triggers. That might be a bug, uh, a virus. Uh, uh, it may be some uh, pollutant or a pattern of weather. So there's something that these people meet in their environment. Now, we tried very hard to try and study this, um, again, using um, the, the skill sets of the ADAPT Center, and we tried to link patients as they move through space and time with their condition, with the prevalent environmental factors associated with them. So there are uh, very large online um, stores of data concerning all manner of pollutants, all manner of weather patterns. Um, in particular, UVB is the one that we were interested in. Um, so we were able to link the Irish cohort um, and to a certain extent, the UK cohort with the mix of these pollutants and weather factors over time. 
but unfortunately weren't able to identify any specific things that really shone out as being triggers of this disease. So it remains unknown. In terms of bugs, there are certainly a lot of interest in bacteria such as Staph aureus. And uh, people with vasculitis tend to have Staph aureus colonization in the nose. And so there's a search for epitopes that are on the um, on the organisms that might be a mimic for the, the epitopes on the NPR and PR3 molecules. So some environmental trigger in a genetically predisposed individual. It's just fascinating that 62 years through their life and nothing, and then suddenly, out of the blue, it really comes down you know, acutely um, as, they, as they enter later life. That really is so strange. Gosh, and I suppose the research is still ongoing there, which will be really interesting to follow over the next few years. Could you talk to us maybe a little bit about the treatment of this disease? We've talked about the pathogenesis, but how do we treat it? Are there guidelines that we follow as clinicians? Um, there are several international guidelines. Um, the ones that we tend to follow here are, I was involved in uh, developing the ULAR guidelines, uh, which were recently updated uh, in collaboration with ULAR and UVAS. Um, there are, similarly, in North America, they have a, an ACR guideline, and uh, in various different parts of the world, they, they have, tend to have their own local regional uh, guidelines. But the ULAR guidelines are the ones that we tend to follow. And the recommendations there are that patients with acute-associated vasculitis are initially treated with corticosteroids, and there's fairly you know, good agreement about that. Um, what's uh, reasonably new in this respect is that um, we tend to try to use lower doses of steroids. You know, there's a general sense across the whole patch that we, we should be moving as much as we can towards steroid sparing um, and the steroids are quite effective at pushing out this fire, this you know myeloid cell fire. But of course, they have a lot of side effects. Um, but we, what we tend to do now, on the back of the, the mainly because of the Pexivas trial, um, is that we tend to bring them down quite quickly. And so we re, we reduce the dose more, much more quickly than we used to in the past. So in addition to steroids, we generally need a second agent um, with anchor-associated vasculitis. Um, if without a second agent, almost invariably the disease will come back. Uh, once you start weaning the steroid, so conventionally, um, certainly in nephrology fields, we've tended to use cyclophosphamide. It, conventionally, in, in rheumatology circles, it tends to be a little bit more methotrexate in that field. Um, but uh, over the last ten or fifteen years, of course, there's been a great expansion in the use of anti-B cell agents such as rituximab. Um, so rituximab are really probably the, the treatment of choice. But, Again, this splits quite strongly down um, rheumatology and nephrology lines. We, we tend to still like the cyclophosphamide. I'm not quite sure the reason for this. Um, but rheumatology, I'm pretty much almost entirely now, I think, switched over to rituximab. We still use quite a lot of rituximab, and there's a couple of really good trials to support the use of rituximab. It is currently non-inferior, felt to be non-inferior to cyclophosphamide. So definitely the big thing over the last 10, 15 years has been a shift towards use of rituximab, both for induction and maintenance therapy. Now, the cyclophosphamide, um, again, traditionally was given orally. Um, and when you give a course of oral cyclophosphamide, particularly if it goes on for you know, three to six months, you end up with a very large cumulative load. And this has significant long-term problems with respect to late cancers, um, particularly in the bladder and the bone marrow. So we tend now, on the back of the Cyclops trial, 
to give, if we use cyclophosphamide, we give it as a pulsed intravenous course and we use a quite short course. And uh, the load of cyclophosphamide there tends to be less than five or six grams, uh, whereas previously it could have been 50 or 60 grams. So my, in my sense uh, is that in those kind of doses, cyclophosphamide is a reasonably non-toxic medication. And on a, on a par, I would say, with, with rituximab, and certainly in the trials, there was no major difference in adverse effects between the two medications. Now, rituximab is a, is a monoclonal anti-B cell agent. It's uh, very specific. You know, it result, results in B cell depletion, which is measurable within a day or two of giving the medication. Um, so it, you know, it is felt to be you know, quite specific, while cyclophosphamide is a, you know, a broad cellular toxin, so potentially hits a lot more parts of the immune system that, that perhaps is necessary. So it could be viewed as a dirtier type of treatment, uh, B-cell, anti-B cell agents as a, as a cleaner one, but we still tend to use it in nephrology um, to, to a certain extent, partly because it is a lot cheaper than rituximab. Do you know, it's funny, you're talking about the, these side effects and, and we use a lot of dirty drugs in medicine still. I mean, steroids probably being the dirtiest of all of them. But is there research being done to look at maybe newer or more targeted treatments for ANCA-associated vasculitis? Yes, well, as I mentioned, the key area that we're looking at at the moment in the field is steroid sparing. And so getting rid of the steroids if possible. And the main advance in that area in the last couple of years has been a a really nice bench-to-bedside story of translational medicine in the in development of the anti-C5A receptor blocker, Evacopan, which was known as CCX168. Uh, Evacopan has now been approved by the FDA and EMA for treatment of uh, severe ANC-associated vasculitis and has is now already in widespread use in the UK and in the States. Um, it's still going through HDA approval in Ireland, so we're not able to use it freely yet, unfortunately. But it was a really nice story of uh, a serendipitous finding um, in the in vivo models of ANCA-associated vasculitis where unexpectedly they, the researchers found that the complement system was involved. So we don't see complement deposited um, in, in the lesions, unlike lupus, for example. And we don't see the complement level in the blood drop in ANCA-associated vasculitis. So it was a real surprise to see that certain elements, when you, t- when you take elements of the alternate complement pathway out in, the, in, in mice, uh, it completely abrogated the disease. And from there, it was uh, discovered that the C5A uh, was the key molecule. And uh, a targeted small molecule was developed for this and tested in the mouse and subsequently found to be highly effective in, in humans uh, in two trials. That's a very interesting bench-to-bedside success story for Evacopan. We know that not everyone recovers from the flares of disease. What molecular and cellular events prevent resolution of vasculitic injury after the initial insult? Yes, well, as you know, the um, inflammation is very good at resolving, and, and that's there's a very strong molecular mechanisms for encouraging res- resolution of inflammation. So why... Ankyovasculitis doesn't resolve and results in a chronic inflammation. You know that's an interesting question. There are a couple of thoughts on this. You know, firstly, there is a an anti-inflammatory arm of the immune system, for example, T regulatory cells, which are, are probably reduced in function in associated vasculitis, and uh, we rely on these to restore some of the balance when inflammation occurs. 
Also, in autoimmune disease, persistence of uh, inflammation may occur if the autoantigen is continuously exposed to the immune system. Now, the, the interesting thing about ANC-associated vasculitis is that the autoantigens, MPO and PR3, they decorate neutrophil nets. Now, nets are produced by blood cells to try and ensnare organisms. And it's basically the DNA of the cell is extruded and it's very sticky and tends to trap microorganisms. Now, these nets are covered in myeloperoxidase and PR3, and they're extracellular, of course. And also, nets tend to be produced in the setting of ANCA. So ANCA can induce production of nets. And so there's a kind of vicious circle there, where as the ANCA persists, the neutrophils produce nets, they trigger the production of ANCA, and the ANCA induce nets. So that's potentially one of the, uh, the vicious circles that cause perpetuation of repeated waves of neutrophil inflammation. So, yeah, for these reasons, uh, it tends to, to follow a chronic inflammatory course with you know, severe tissue destruction um, if untreated. It would be very useful to track patients' progress. Can we use biomarkers to predict flares before they happen or assess severity of flares while they're occurring? So biomarker discovery, as you mentioned at the start, is a big uh, focus of our lab. So, uh, yes, um, there are certainly biomarkers of interest there. In terms of de- detecting active disease, um, our particular interest was in a molecule called CD163. Uh, and a couple of years ago, we found that this is present in the urine of patients with active renal vasculitis. Um, even when the, the traditional markers of, of active kidney disease are not elevated, such as the creatinine or the urinalysis. So CD163 is shed by macrophages, activated macrophages in the kidney, in the glomerulus, and it's detectable in the urine. And so it goes up when there's inflammation going on in the glomerulus. Now, whether this can predict relapse, we're currently studying. We don't know that yet. And we uh, were recently awarded a, a, an EU project called Paradise, um, which is personalized relapse prediction in ankyl-associated vasculitis. And the idea behind this is that we... There's biomarker discovery, for example, CD163 or T-cell or B-cell signatures and flow cytometry to detect subtle subclinical immune activation in some people. And we know, of course, that in in, in some people, when you look under the surface at the immune system with sensitive flow cytometry and other testing, the immune system looks almost normal. And uh, I suspect, or the feeling is, uh, and hypothesis, the paradise study is that we can just stop treatment in these people. Because at the moment, we do not know how long to treat people for. Now, these ULAR guidelines I recommended, or I, I, I mentioned earlier on, and they've got a rough you know, two years for anti-MPO, three years for anti-PR3, and then uh, suck it and see, and see what happens when you try and withdraw it. Now, I know that those numbers are made up, you know, that, that duration of treatment, um, and I think everybody's different. So there is a real uh, niche here or a possibility for personalized medicine because, you know, as I mentioned, some people have a normal immune system after nine months and some people have a persistently, subtly elevated uh, immune system, even though they look completely normal in intermission. When you look carefully at their, for example, TH17 cells, you find there's quite a lot of them poised and ready to uh, attack the body once you take the, uh, the foot off the clutch. If you, if you withdraw the, the rituximab, for example, then it, um, the, these people tend to flare. 
And we think, um, you know, pr- approximately 30 to 40 percent of people with current regimens will flare up within five years. And so the kind of question here is whether we can start thinking about novel machine learning or artificial intelligence approaches to integrating clinical data with these biomarker data and perhaps with patient report outcome data uh, to identify signatures that portray a very high risk uh, of relapse or a very, very low risk of relapse that will allow the clinician to stop treatment. And so uh, that's the hope in the future. It really is a, a, an absolutely fascinating part. I know in our clinical practice, it's exactly the same. You know, what you you never know when to stop treating. So if we had really, really good biomarkers, it would probably change people's lives, really. Um, Mark, one of the things that you work on is this Irish Rare Kidney Disease Registry. Could you maybe talk to us a little bit about this project and some of the exciting research work that's come out of it? Yes, the, the Rare Kidney Disease Registry in Biobank um, Basically, our entire research program revolves around it. It is the sun for our research solar system, if you like. It was set up in 2012 with support from Science Foundation Ireland. And uh, it, it has recently changed name, actually, um, because Ireland joined uh, the European Reference Network, RETA. Um, you mentioned at the start that I'm involved in that, and I, do ch- I chair the autoimmune strand of it. Um, but it's only quite recently that Ireland has actually joined here in RETA. And so the rare kidney disease registry in my bank has changed its name to the Rita Ireland vasculitis registry in Biobank. So it is going to become part of the overall strategy for managing rare immune disorders in Ireland. Um, and not just, you know, ankyovasculitis, but here in Rita is also interested in auto-inflammatory disorders and in uh, primary immunodeficiency and pediatric rheumatology. Uh, and the interesting thing is that there is often overlap between all of these. So this uh, combination approach for these rare diseases, I think, is quite effective. Um, so the, the registry uh, and biobank has approximately 750 recruits with ankyl-associated vasculitis, which represents about 75% of the patients with the disease in Ireland. And we recruit people usually when they're acutely ill, but the, the key thing for our research is that we get a lot of long-term data and we get a lot of long-term serial samples that allows us to, to really support our biomarker work. And so it's that kind of building that longitudinal timeline um, that is the key uh, for, for, for doing our research. And so I'd just like to take this opportunity really to thank the patient participants in that um, and um, Vasculitis Ireland Awareness uh, for their support uh, of the registry in Biobank over the years. It's fantastic to have such a a huge uptake of of patient participation. I'd say it's very important for the patients themselves as well to feel like they're part of something bigger and, and giving back. It's not the only research you're involved in, though. Maybe you could talk to us a bit about your work with the ADAPT Science Foundation Ireland Centre as well. Well, the, yes, the ADAPT Centre is an SFI centre based in, in Trinity, but also involves other universities around Ireland. And I'm increasingly spending my, my, a lot of my time there because the, I guess the strapline of, of ADAPT is it's human-centric AI. And so I mentioned the AI aspect of Paradise, uh, and Paradise is 50% kind of based in the ADAPT Centre. And so it's really about um, health informatics. It's about ethical AI development it's uh, about data integration, and it's about setting up machine learning platforms um, to allow us to learn from the data as we go along. Um, so it's been really transformative for my research to be able to link that 
to the wet lab work that we do also using the biomarker or the biobank samples and um, the cellular work. So um, kind of linking those two together has really, I think, opened up a lot of doors. I'm amazed you even have time to have lunch. So I'd say it sounds like you're so busy. Look, I, I suppose the final question, Mark, is I just wanted to know, um, what do you think is some of the most exciting research that's coming down the line in regards to ANC-associated vasculitis or outside of this world, maybe from your own work or the work of others? What, what should we be looking out for in the coming months and years? Well, I think um, from a kind of basic science point of view, um, the holy grail of autoimmune disease is true antigen-specific therapies. So um, in terms of defining those epitopes that are important in the autoimmune response, both T-cell and B-cell, there's a lot of exciting work in several groups um, really getting to the grips with what these are because in autoimmune disease, once you can really define those, you can identify what those auto-reactive T-cells are doing. You can start developing immunotherapies against those specific cells. So I think that, that... provides a promise for for getting away from this kind of broad brushed you know steroid based uh, immunosuppressive therapy that we use and i think from a general point of view that kind of personalized medicine approach you know um, really i think hopefully will, will transform and um, the way we treat this disease in the future and help to reduce the really severe morbidity and mortality still that we see and um, associated with associated vasculitis Professor Mark Little, who's a consultant nephrologist in Tala and Beaumont University Hospitals in Dublin. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure, Lara. Thank you. Well, that was so fascinating. Gosh, one of the things I actually found most amazing there about the ANCA-associated vasculitides is that the age of onset on average is 62 So this means that people are walking around for 62 years with this predisposition, but they remain completely unaffected. As Mark mentioned, epigenetics also plays a role. So you'd wonder if maybe changes in the epigenetics are maybe partially to blame for this later presentation. Yeah, absolutely. And I like what he said about autoimmunity being a triad of genetics, epigenetics and the environment. When I was in college, we talked about the two hit hypothesis of genetics and environment for autoimmunity. So it's nice to see epigenetics getting the attention it deserves. That's actually really true, Vianca. The other thing that I found really exciting is his work on CD163 as a biomarker to predict flares and the idea that we might be able to reduce the length of time that we immunosuppress patients for. This would obviously have a really important knock-on effect to mitigate side effects of, of potentially strong immunosuppressive medication. Yeah, that would be great. I also thought it's really interesting that in ANCA-associated vasculitis, complement is not found in the deposits and the complement levels are normal in the blood, but evacopan works. It just goes to show how different parts of the immune system affect one another and there's an interplay that we don't really fully understand. It absolutely does. It's so complex, the interplay between all the different parts. I suppose that brings our episode to a close. Um, Vianca, is there anything you wanted to say this week? (laughs) Any wonderful (laughs) jokes to tell? Well, no jokes, but I've got a fascinating new Anka fact. Oh, okay, go ahead. Okay, so you know you have C Anka and P Anka. Well, they recently found that like certain patterns that are variable, sometimes they look like C, sometimes they look like P under the microscope. So they're calling them variable Anka. Variable Anka. So would that be V Anka? V Anka. Oh my God, have you been waiting your entire career for something like that, Bianca? 
Absolutely. The anchor, yes. I love it. Okay, well, look, that's brilliant. That's enough for us from this month. If you want to get in touch with us with comments or questions about the show, please email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. So don't forget that's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. That's T-E-A. We'd like to thank our guest today, Professor Mark Little, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and our editor, Aidan McKelvey. This episode of Immunity was sponsored by Farming Group. Thanks so much to you for listening, and we'll chat to you again next month. Goodbye for now.